This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, editor of Not Even Past, and today we're going to be talking about urban slavery. We have two guests today, Dinah Ramey Berry, who is a longtime contributor to 15-Minute History and Not Even Past. She teaches African-American history in the history department at UT. And Leslie Harris, who teaches African-American history in the history department at Emory University. And in 2013-2014, she was a fellow here at UT's Institute for Historical Studies. Hi, welcome. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. Let's just start by talking about what urban slavery was. I think when most people think about slavery in the U.S. South, They imagine agricultural workers on big plantations, but apparently there were a lot of slaves in cities. Can you give us a sort of general picture of what urban slavery was about? I think you're absolutely right that our vision, particularly in the U.S., is about southern slavery, antebellum slavery, plantation slavery. But urban slavery was very important to the slave system as a whole. Slaves had to work in every part of the economy in the South. They were not just limited to plantations. So in cities, about 10% of slaves in the antebellum South lived and worked in cities, and they did everything ranging from domestic labor to industrial work. They worked in the shipyards, loading and unloading goods on to ships. They traveled back and forth between rural and urban areas, transporting goods. Any kind of work that you can imagine people doing, slaves did. And they were woven throughout the economy. There are very few jobs, in fact, under slavery that enslaved people did not do in Mm -hmm. the Antebellum South and in other parts of the world. There have been urban slaves as long as there's been slavery. So it's not at all unusual to have slaves in cities. What about the the regime of slavery in cities? Was it very different from the regime on the plantation? It was because they weren't controlled by the agricultural you know, calendar, which is what you see in rural communities. They were controlled by a different rhythm of life. If they were working as domestics in the homes of their owners, they would just be doing domestic work like serving and cooking and doing um, tasks around the house. If they worked on a shipyard, they were doing work based on when ships came in, when they needed to be loaded, when they needed to send them back out to go uh, travel. So it really the rhythm of work is much different, and there's a lot more geographic mobility among blacks in urban communities. And there's also a lot... Do you mean they could move around the cities more freely or from city to city? They could move around the city more freely. And I'm saying that kind of hesitantly because Mm -hmm. they um, had to have passes. They They had to have permission to go where they were going. But oftentimes they lived in even separate quarters from their owners. Um, some cities had communities outside the edge of the city where all the black workers lived, both enslaved and some free. And so they lived there. So there's a little bit of different mobility that you have on a large plantation where they often could not even go to another plantation. Or there were a limited amount of people that had the ability to travel. Can you give us a sense of how many urban slaves there were or what the ratio was of urban to rural do we know? We don't have the exact <laughs> figures, and they change. Um, I mean, because we, we have different census records that can tell us this information, but depending on what year you're looking at it, what city, how the census was enumerated for that year. But for the most part, we're talking about 10 to 20 percent of all slaves were in some type of urban community. In other cities like Charleston, they're closer to the 20 percent of those that were living in an urban in the city. So it really depends on on the time period that you're looking at. 
I would just add, if you look at individual cities, some cities, the black-white population is almost 60-40 or 50-50. Savannah was like that for some time, New Orleans. Um, and then the gender ratio in cities tends to be overwhelmingly female. And we think this is because women were involved in cities in the upkeep of the fancy homes of the wealthy, but also even middling people would have a domestic servant or two to assist them with cooking and cleaning. So a lot of cities have a majority of women um, when you're looking at the slave population. The other thing I would point out is that the population in cities changes in the 1840s and 1850s in the South. You have an immigrant population moving in from Europe. The percentage of slaves in cities decreases, but so does the actual number of slaves in cities decreases. And we're still not sure what that's about. It could be that owners are moving slaves to rural areas because the, there's a cotton boom at that time just on the eve of the Civil War. So the owners might be taking slaves out of the cities and moving them um, to plantations and moving them west as places like Texas open up. So there is some change over the course of um, the antebellum period in terms of what slaves and cities the numbers look like. Leslie, you mentioned some of the occupations that Black urban slaves performed in. Can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of uh, work that people did? Sure. Um, uh, household labor, as I mentioned, if you are a domestic in um, a home, if you were a cook, you might start your day by going to the market, seeing what's fresh, bringing that back home, spending your day in the kitchen. Um, laundresses, um, both in homes for individuals, but also uh, laundry facilities around the city. Um, uh, women um, also cleaning houses and things like that. Either you were owned by someone and did it for that owner and that house, if it's a large house, there might be a team of you, or you might be hired out to do that kind of labor. For men, uh, men do a lot of skilled labor. So they work alongside whites or, um, you know, things like blacksmithing, ironworking, carpentry, all of those kinds of skilled jobs are the kinds of things that male slaves might do. Some cities own slaves. We just did a project um, in Savannah and the Municipal Archives in Savannah recently put up um, a website about the city ownership of slaves. And those slaves would do all kinds of infrastructure work on the city, making sure the roads are smooth, doing repair to city buildings and things like that. Even possibly, uh, we still have to investigate this, but possibly working in um, the jail, assisting um, with cleaning there, cleaning municipal buildings. So that's another option. Any kind of industry that's happening in the city, um, it's likely that there are slaves um, involved, either a small number or, um, again, in Savannah, we learned that the timber industry actually employed a large number of slaves. The brick industry actually employed a large number of slaves. Uh, Dinah, you mentioned that sometimes they lived separately from their owners, sometimes in communities. What were living conditions like for urban slaves? From what we can tell, they weren't. In, for those that lived in these separate black communities, they, the quality of, of the housing was not as nice, obviously, as the, their owners. But it was also different from that which you would find on a rural plantation when you see these slave cabins. So they were sort of overcrowded living spaces. We have some images in the post-slavery period that sort of show us what it looked like, the community that they lived in. And as I mentioned, both enslaved and some free blacks lived in this community because they were often married to one another. But for those that lived in the outhouses or in the carriage houses of their owners, their living conditions were, I, I don't like to use uh, comparative terms. I, I was about to say better and I caught myself. But their living conditions were different. Um, they might have been, uh, the quality of the housing was different than what you would find in a rural community. But these were small houses, the ones that were outside the city. 
um, one-room houses with a chimney, and they could cook outside or in the chimney. They would cook with large cast iron skillets and pans and pots, or they would put sticks on a fire outside and cook outside. But it was very much communal living in this space. And did some of the urban slaves live with their masters yes. in their manor houses or Absolutely. Mansions? I mean, the, the thing about city living, if the slave lived with the owners, was intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a necessarily positive way, but um, some owners like to have the enslaved person sleeping at the foot of their bed or sleeping in the kitchen and they could ring a bell and bring the owner something in the night if they got thirsty or hungry. So for urban slaves, uh, there's a lot of forced intimacy with owners and separation, too, from slave communities. If the on the rural plantations, you have hundred, you know, uh, maybe 100 or 50 slaves in uh, a kind of community urban slaves could be more isolated, depending on how tight the control of their owner was and how many people they knew in the city. And it sounds like there was a lot more mixing between free black, enslaved black, and free white people, especially in workplaces. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did the presence of free blacks, for example, or whites affect enslaved life in urban communities? I think it does a lot. And actually, um, they're working side by side. So enslaved people are hearing about things like the anti-slavery movement. They're learning about the Nat Turner Rebellion. They're reading, they're, they have people maybe near them that are literate that might read them pamphlets or things. They're interacting with people that have traveled all over the world. Um, Some of them have come from different places, and they're learning about things. Um, And so we see this with a lot of the slaves that that actually rebelled in some of the large-scale rebellions in the United States history. A lot of them were either free or they were working with free blacks and whites in very much urban spaces. So we've seen that historically. And so that does have an influence on their attitude, and particularly those that then travel back to a rural plantation. They're bringing all of that knowledge with them. Is urban slavery taught in the high school curriculum? No, it's not. Not yet. Slavery is hardly taught. They do do civil war. Um, It depends on what state you live in as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just came back from a workshop for eighth grade teachers, and they were doing, they did civil war. They did not have a sense of the differences between urban and rural. And they were very surprised to learn about like a brick making factory like Leslie was talking about, or, you know, Draymond that worked by hauling timber and cotton to the urban regions. So they didn't, they weren't aware of that. They knew about domestic work inside homes, but they had not thought about the larger urban space as a setting for slavery. Mm -hmm. And what, um, you're both involved in doing research on urban slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, What uh, kinds of things are people studying now? Um, And what is, where is this field going? One, for at least for there's a number of scholars right now that are doing work in comparative work. So there's a, uh, people that are doing work in New Orleans and looking at Sierra Leone and looking at Barbados. They're doing sort of multiple comparative research on urban settings, and they're tracing enslaved people who went from one city to the other. Um, the ones that are doing work on gender and sexuality are looking at women that were sex workers, and I, I use that term. I don't know. I don't really like that term because I don't know if they were, they weren't really getting paid for the labor that they were doing, but we can't really call them prostitutes either. But there were a number of women that had power. There were brothel houses that women operated and owned in some of these urban communities. So that's one area of looking at urban slavery in a comparative sense and not just in the United States. And I think we still need to know more about um, who owned slaves in urban areas. Um, 
in colonial and early national New York, for example, you have not only um, wealthy people owning slaves, but also artisans who own slaves as helpers. And that sort of middling level of slave ownership, I don't think we know enough about. Um, and, and the same would be true in the antebellum South, that, you know, what does it mean to own only one or two slaves because you're an urban tradesperson and you're in a city and you don't have room for more than that or money for more than that, but those slaves are intimately tied to your economic well-being. So I think we still can do some more asking of questions about um, uh, what what kinds of slave owners are there in cities and, and what does it mean to, to own a slave in the city if you own only one or two. How has studying urban slavery changed the picture of U.S. slavery altogether? It's, it's forcing us to rethink this notion of large cotton plantations where people are working in the fields, you know, from sunup to sundown. It's allow, it's moving us into other settings, not just homes and fields, but also industrial settings, um, shops, workshops, shipyards. And that's changing the way we think about slavery. Um, like, as Leslie was saying, we're looking at cities that own slaves, universities that own slaves, you know, medical schools and colleges that own slaves. So we're seeing all these different places where enslaved people show up. And it's, it's a lot more ubiquitous than we thought. Absolutely. A lot more, it sounds like. And it's changing the way we, we think about it as a whole. And I think we're in a moment now, historiographically, where we're trying to understand the diversity of the institution in all of these places before we can really write these larger consensus narratives. But I think it's okay to teach students that it's a very, very diverse system, depending on where you live, what kind of work, and so forth. I think it's also important that when we realize that enslaved people can work anywhere, it makes it should make us think differently about African Americans as laborers as well. I think that um, in American history and even down to today, people are very dismissive of African American labor or imagine that African Americans can, can only occupy one place in the economy. And uncovering the variety of ways that enslaved people worked can give us a different picture of what African Americans as laborers have done in this country. And I, I think that's a really important conversation to continue to have. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this subject that's really new to a lot of us. Thanks. Thank Thank you. you. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.